Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. As we head to October, the best month in baseball, we will no doubt celebrate some of the great moments of baseball's past, as well as add new chapters to the sport's legacy. It's what's so great about the game, isn't it? Connecting the stars and the champions throughout the years. This week's guest on 30 with Murdy has seen a lot and experienced a lot in this game. In fact, earlier this month marked the 60th anniversary of his Major League debut, and that is the one and only Tim McCarver. McCarver's playing career began in 1959 when he was just 17 years old. He played on two St. Louis Cardinals World Championship teams in 1964 and 67. He was the runner-up for the National League MVP in 67, made two National League All-Star teams, and along the way he caught Hall of Famers Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton, among many others. McCarver moved to the broadcast booth in 1980, where he quickly gained the reputation as one of the best analysts in the game, and he called his first World Series in 1985, the first of 24 World Series he called for national TV before stepping back in 2013. He still calls a couple dozen games for Cardinals television in St. Louis. Tim is a Hall of Fame broadcaster, winner of the Ford Frick Award in 2012, and next week Tim will be honored at Fordham University with the Vin Scully Award for Excellence in Sports Broadcasting. Recently, I had a chance to catch up with McCarver to talk about his career as a broadcaster, as well as some highlights from his playing days. Tim spun tales from his first game in the majors, only a few months removed from high school in Memphis. We also talk about some of Tim's highlights from World Series and All-Star Games and get his thoughts on some of the changes in the game and the product on the field in 2019. But we begin our conversation talking about his latest award, the Vin Scully Award, presented by Fordham University's radio station WFUV. Here is my conversation with the great Tim McCarver. Tim, you've won a lot of awards and a lot of honors. And I got to think, you know, the Ford Frick Award, the Hall of Fame is is got to be the biggest one. But when there's an award named after Vin Scully, his name is attached <laughs> to it, and you win that, I got to think that's pretty big. It's, it is it is a major, major award in my mind. And you know what? I got my first uh, phone call from Vinny. I'd never talked to Vinny on the phone. And when he called about six months ago, I was breathless. <laughs> I mean, come on. Who's not going to be affected by getting a phone call from Vince Scully? And I was no exception. It was it was fabulous. We talked for about 20 minutes uh, about even things that don't include uh, baseball or announcing or things like that. We covered that, too. But it was it was just a, it was wonderful. It really was. Uh, it, it is. Uh, it's pretty special when you're talking to Vinny for 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> Tim, I'm I'm curious. When you first got into broadcasting, I want to know two things. What did you think was the easiest part about it, and what did you think was the hardest part about it? Uh, I thought timing, the timing of the words that you expressed, uh, not necessarily to be verbose, not necessarily to be. Uh, on and on and on but what was the what was the word to use 
at a particular time. And that timing is very, very valuable, particularly to a, uh, to a man who is trying to describe the play. It's very, very important to be uh, um, brief and impactful. Uh, all of those things are, are, are vital. Uh, and they, at times, can be the toughest things to do also. Uh, it, it's almost as though when you're, a, uh, when you're one that's played the game, that knows the game, supposed to know the game, uh, supposed to uh, be, that that you're you're afraid to react. You're afraid to, and I was never afraid to react. If there if there was one thing that I was either given or honed over the years, it was react. Don't worry about it. React. Sometimes the reaction has got me in trouble, uh, <laughs> but I reacted. I did, I, and I was happy I did, even though it, it might have been <clears throat> it might have been the wrong thing to say or the wrong thing, uh, what have you. But it was honest. Reactions are honest. Oh my gosh, look at that! And you're pleading with your viewer to look at that, hmm. or 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 you're setting up a play that might be uh, it may or may not happen, but it. Uh, but you're making a good case for it to happen. Uh, and then, consequently, you're allowing the audience to, relate, to react along with you. That, to me, are, are some beautiful moments in the game. And I've had a few, uh, uh, too few to mention, but I've had a few. You know, it's funny. I don't know if you're uh, how closely you followed if you're a football fan, but Tony Romo was getting praised last year for his ability to just watch the watch the formation and call the play that was happening and giving his audience a, a glimpse into what the quarterback was doing, what he was seeing, and exactly what was going to happen next. That's a lot harder in baseball, but I got a feeling that you know from watching you and listening to you over the years, that's the kind of thing you were trying to get your viewer to see. Yeah, <clears throat> to to allow you number one to re to react, and and then to allow them to put them in a situation that's that way. I'm not sure it's I'm I'm not sure it's harder in football than baseball. I'm, I don't know um, because I'm not a football analyst. I certainly admire Tony. I admire all the great analysts, John from John Madden uh, and others. Uh, uh, but I, I'm I'm not sure. That's a, that's kind of an interesting um, interesting thing to think about uh, whether football is is tougher to set up uh, than baseball. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But that, it's an interesting point. Timmy, did anybody from another sport? Uh, you mentioned Madden. I don't know how much you had talked to him over the years, but did anybody from another sport ever have an impact on how you broadcasted games and uh, give you, or give you advice that mattered to you that wasn't just about baseball, it was about broadcasting a game? One, one of the great things John told me, we were both with CBS in the early 90s. I worked with Jack Buck in 1990 and 91, and then with Sean McDonough in 92 and 93. And when we had our little... Um, uh, our little sessions uh, in the, during the off season. The one thing John told me that I've never forgotten, he said, 
don't uh, let the game come to you. Don't let don't let what you're thinking overwhelm the game coming to you. And that's a that's a, a very important point when you think about that because you're you're allowing the the game to dictate what you say and not what you're saying to dictate to try to wedge it in if you know what i mean you mm-hmm. know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it's um uh and and that's when the game starts flowing that's when that's when there's that there's that wonderful rhythm that goes on between you and your partner that uh is just a thing to behold from someone in the profession Tim, I love the timing of this award, too, because this is it's been we just passed the 60th anniversary of your debut, your big league debut, which started your baseball career four decades, (laughs) four decades in the game and then all the years broadcasting. But I was fascinated when I just looked up the box score, your debut, September 10th, 1959. Uh, it's the Cardinals at Milwaukee. There are only 1,600 people in the stands. You were 17 years old. I can't even imagine. You were still 17. I can't either, Sweeney. I cannot either. Uh, earlier in that game, I had a something about which I was very embarrassed in front of my teammates. It was my first major league game in uniform, and I gave out in the bottom of the fourth with Henry Aaron hitting come on Hank <laughs> that, is a, that is a true story and, and Al, Alec Grannis you may remember the name yeah. shortstop came up to me and he said son he was old enough to call me son and I was young enough to accept it he said son up here we root for our guys <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, everybody on the bench exploded, and I was <clears throat> purple with embarrassment. <laughs> purple. And I later on in that game. So that's, unfortunately, my first at bat was was uh, was necessitated later in the game by that faux pas. And boy, that's that's you don't root for the other team. I found that out. I, <laughs> it was a pinch hitting appearance. Do you remember? Do you remember like what you were feeling walking up to the plate for that first one? I remember Del Del, Del Crandall said, "Welcome." That's all he said. <laughs> and then, and then a, a fly ball to who else? Henry Aaron and right field. Wow. You know. This... And the next day, I started against Glenn Hobby at Wrigley Field. The thing that stuck out to me about that box score is I noticed that one of the names on the Brewers uh, side of that box score is Ray Boone. And the the last game you played in your career, you know, you were teammates with Bob Boone. And then, of course, one of your famous broadcasting games is Game 7, 2003 ALCS, when Aaron Boone hits the game-winning home run against the Red Sox, and his brother, Brett, is in the booth next to you. I mean, you know, Boone's all over your career. Michael Wiseman was our producer for that game, and he said, Tim, now take your time, but move out of the shot. (laughs) 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 Because they were obviously trying to get Brett Boone after his brother had just uh, won the American League pennant for the New York Yankees. And he was not having a good uh, series yeah. before, before that uh, before that home run. And there, there was a brilliant piece of producing by Michael, I might add, who is a 
great, great producer. Uh, but just to Aaron Boone, split screen, Aaron Boone, Brett Boone. Brett Boone, the announcer, Aaron Boone, the hitter, and the Yankees have won yet another pennant. It was, it was brilliant and stands out in my mind as one great moment. I love the way the generations cross the way they do right there with your career. And it happened again recently. I mean, as, as you and I are talking, last night, Mike Yastrzemski is playing left field at Fenway Park and hits a home run at Fenway Park, and his grandfather, Carl, is in the stands. I mean, you don't get moments like that uh, in almost any other walk of life. Well, but the game, the game is such that even though, and I know it, the game's been criticized today uh, uh, for, for very sound reasons, but if, if you just give the game a chance, it will present the moments that you're looking for. Just allow it to happen. And that's the one thing that I, that I found out in broadcasting, that don't, p- please, t- in telling yourself, don't force this. Allow it to happen. And when you allow it to happen, it, it, it feels so good when it does happen. There's uh, there's something else that stuck out to me when I was just uh, perusing your page again. You were you were a perfect uh, three for three. You were a one thousand hitter in the All Star game, huh? <laughs> I, yeah, catfish supplies. Catfish kept pitching me away in, in Anaheim in 1967, and uh, I was I liked the ball away. And Catfish didn't know that. I got a couple of hits there. And then uh, my first hit was against Pete Rickard in the hometown of St. Louis. Yeah. I, I was driven in by Mari Wills. I'm very, very proud of that moment. That's. I mean, you scored the winning run in St. Louis yeah. in the 66 All-Star game. I mean, yeah, that's uh, – and, and the next year you go two for two in extra innings. Uh, a couple of two to one games. I mean, there aren't. Yeah, there there aren't too many people who can say they batted a thousand in an All Star game. That's when the pitchers are supposed to dominate. <laughs> I think the few at bats I had was one of the big reasons. <laughs> Who's kidding? Who? You know, I, you know. I've talked about all the great broadcasters uh, that I've been associated with. I took Howard Cosell's place in 1985. Al Michaels taught me. Uh, more about television than anybody I, I work with. I had a chance to work with Keith Jackson in 1986, the Mets playoff series uh, that was scintillating uh, with Jack Buck. I'll see it. We'll see you tomorrow night yeah. in, in 1991. And then with Joe Buck, 20 years later, who said, after David Freeze had a home run in the 11th inning, he said, We'll see you tomorrow night. Now, you know. When you're to the right of both father and son, mm-hmm. it means, again, it means you're old. <laughs> <laughs> but you're old for a reason, and I love those reasons. And you're good enough to have been there for that long. That's the other thing. You know, there's something that I've, I've talked about a lot recently when we talk about the way the game has changed and the way pitching has changed. And you were there for it, and I, I still can't wrap my head around you know, what was happening in the moment. I would love for you to describe it to people. Uh, game 7, 64 World Series. Bob Gibson's got a lead in the ninth inning. He's trying to pitch a complete game. 
He gave up two home runs in the ninth inning and was still allowed to finish the game. He did finish it, but what was happening with you guys on the mound and and in the, you know I, I he mentioned how he looked in the dugout and, and said, "Are you sure you I'm going to finish this?" Um, but what do you remember I about didn't that look ninth in inning? The dugout. Bob may have. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I learned by then in catching Bob Gibson. Don't look in the dugout for him. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm serious. Uh, but Johnny Keane came to the mound with uh, Bobby Richardson, the batter. And uh, and Johnny, when asked about it later, we were up 7-5, to five, two out, nobody on. But following, following Bobby Richardson was Roger Maris. So you don't want Roger Maris sitting uh, after hitting 60 home runs three years earlier with, in a ballpark. That's 310 feet down the right field line. Mm-hmm. So uh, Johnny Keane, when asked why he left Gibson in the game, he said, I owed it to his heart, and did he ever. Wow. And he came in and, and jammed Bobby Richardson. Dow Maxwell made the play, and we won the World Series against the Vaunted Yankees. So how is your friend Mr. Gibson doing these days? He's doing okay. I know exactly what you're saying. I've talked to him several times. And he's doing okay. That's about as far as I can uh, as I can take it. Twenty. Okay. Know you understand. Fair enough. So, Tim, in your role now, that's been cut back. You're still doing some Cardinals games on TV, uh, but not nearly as many games as you uh, were doing, um, you know, years back. But the thing I I hear from a lot of people, even people that played in this game five and ten years ago, is that they don't like the way the game has changed in such a short period of time. Now. You've seen a lot of changes over the course of your career in the game. I'm just curious, very simply, do you like the game today? Uh, yeah, I like the game, yes. Uh, do I like it more than I liked it before? I don't think so. I think I think you have to adapt to the changes that are being made. Uh, are there certain things that, that uh, players of my generation... Uh, don't like across the board I think so Uh, like two strike hitting I mean strikeouts aren't as uh, the players don't seem as vulnerable to a strikeout as they used to uh, seem Uh, maybe maybe I didn't explain that properly but strikeouts don't seem to be as important as they used to uh, seem Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, guys are guys are swinging for the fences now with two strikes instead of adapting, uh, going the other way. Uh, I mean, choking up on the bat is a almost a misnomer now. <laughs> yeah, uh, with with certain players and base running has suffered. I mean, you know, it, it used to be that players prided themselves on going from first to third with one out uh, or even even then out now it doesn't seem you know moving runners along moving a runner from second with nobody out uh the third that the you know so on the one hand i say the game is still the same i i i don't mean to say that because it's certainly not that way and the hitters have 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 changed Uh, i think as a result if you've got really good stuff I think it's easier to pitch to hitters today as kind of an aside. On the other hand, I think the ball's harder than it used yeah, to be. Yeah. Uh, I think the bats are harder than they used to be. I think 
in, in that respect, I don't know what's going to happen during the offseason, uh, but I think attention should be toward those two things because they, you know, the Players Association and Major League Baseball have to get together. And, and if, if, if the ball's harder, well, soften it. <laughs> you know, if the bats yeah. are harder, soften them. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. But, they, but it should be done. You know, so much of what the game is right now is based on a new level of statistics, and I always liked how you appreciated the numbers in the game, but I'm curious as as a player, as a catcher, would you have liked to have had the depth of information that is provided now? I think I would have, uh, I don't know if I would have thrived with that extra information, but it would have have helped. I think I, I was... I think I've softened my stance on the metric system. I think the people that are in charge of those things, I think they're doing a very good job. They're doing the very best job they can possibly do. But on the other hand, I think, you know, baseball is a game of feel. And and uh, I remember Dallas Green used to say, uh, uh, statistics have no heart. Yeah. And I, I love that comment because he was right I mean uh, hard statistics uh, do not have a you know they don't have a heart and players do Uh, and and there are guys obviously with bigger hearts than others Uh, on the other hand you know it's it's an amalgam of everything that uh, you have to study to get to whether the game has changed irreparably I don't think that that's the case I think that baseball can uh, can get themselves out of this uh, by common sense uh, but the game you know the viewing habits have, have changed among fans now you have 12 and 13 year old children looking at their iPhone yeah. during the game they've got they're, they're they come to a baseball game, and even though they're present, uh, their mind's elsewhere. It's, so it's a, it's a changing uh, society that we're dealing with. And baseball's always been very well, uh, done very well, and uh, trying to keep up with society. And, and I think they'll, they have people in charge who will continue to change with society. So without trying to beat the beat the horse uh those are my responses and and in some way uh, they're not you know they're not tethered to common sense i'm not i'm not really sure and i'm glad i don't have to make those decisions either murdy tim there's you know the the new wave of statistics is incorporated into broadcasts a lot more now and there's a guy there's a guy who uh, who does the games up here david cone who was of a different generation played in a different generation but is very much into the analytic data and the statistical revolution and what it means and how to understand it and how to convey it to the fans i'm curious how much of it you like to use or like to refer to during your broadcasts I think if it's appropriate, explain the appropriateness of it. Uh, I think David Cohn would be the type of guy. He's a very intelligent guy, and I, I admire David in every in every way, as far as a baseball player, as far as a person, and all of that. Uh, 
but I, I think it's to each his own. It's, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't think this new set of statistics should get in the way of explaining the game. Uh, you know, um, uh, and i tell you the truth, Sweeney, I don't do enough of those games. Mm-hmm. If I, I did do about 27, 28 games a year, and that's about a sixth of the schedule. Uh, so I don't do as many games as I would like from a metric standpoint to explain what is appropriate, nor uh, to, to give a, uh, a, a, a presentation to the listener uh, how this applies yeah. and how appropriate, because it may get in the way of a guy going from first to third. So I'm, I'm probably guilty of, of thinking that the game was better uh, when I played. I think that's an appropriate thing for most players. But I also try to be fair in the way I look at these particular uh, items. If, if they, and, it, and it's appropriate also that, you know, that the, uh, your partner uh, blends in and blends into that particular thing uh, as far as metrics are concerned and and not uh, having one side you know mm-hmm. that absolutely you know there, there's another part of I this mean, trying to be fair about this whole whole thing sometimes it's, it's tough to explain fairness <laughs> you know there's another part of this Tim that I, I think is relatable to you during your playing days, now I, I want to know your your take on it. You caught over 1,200 innings twice in your career, and that's a really tough number for guys to reach nowadays because the rest is built in, and that there is value placed in that rest as opposed to value in playing every single day. Um, would you have? Would you? Do you wish that there was value placed in resting a player and getting more production out of him back in your day when you're catching 110 degrees in St. Louis on the turf? That's an interesting question. I would have to say that it revived my hitting skills and it gave my legs a chance to rest uh, over through the middle of my career. Uh, so it, it does have credence. It does make sense uh, that perhaps uh, guys should get away, particularly if your position is that of a catcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about catching. Catching's a grueling. Yeah. How Yadier Molina does it in St. Louis, I mean, I, I'll, I just don't know. I mean, today he's catching after a night game last night, and uh, it's, it's burning hot bristling hot in St. Louis <clears throat> and here he is again behind the plate I mean how this guy does it it's, it's, it's just remarkable and where he catches and, and, and how he shows up every day to catch uh, which is not inconsiderable now I mean, yeah. you, know, you just gotta, gotta think about what he's done with his career uh, but it, it's, it's an interesting thought yes Great. Tim, the the last thing I want to ask you is this. Um, you know, the uh, the Hall of Fame opened up a big class this past summer. 
And a couple of guys got in on the Veterans Committee uh, with Lee Smith and Harold Baines. And you know, I don't think anybody is of the illusion that they are in the exact same category as, say, Joe DiMaggio and Sandy Koufax. But I think it's clear that there's room for a lot of players, a lot more players than currently are in the Hall of Fame, to get in. So as the Veterans Committee convenes every year trying to add a few more names, I'm curious to how many people that uh, – are there certain people that you would like to see get into that – get into that class I, I don't know that I'm qualified <clears throat> to um, to have an opinion on that I guess I'm qualified to have an opinion yeah. but I, I'm, I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's the type of opinion that is uh, that that is appropriate to comment on because I'm not on any committees uh, nor do I you know I, I'm not not a writer I'm a, I'm a broadcaster so uh, I don't know. I, you know, <laughs> Lefty used to have a great line. He'd say, "I feel strongly both ways." <laughs> and, and in a sense, I guess that's one of those Lefty replies. Steve Carlton, of course, was a Lefty, and uh, uh, I, f- I feel strongly both ways. I don't know what I feel strongly about, but, but I feel strongly both ways. You're one of the only people I think that's ever heard Steve Carlton actually speak. That's a, that's a pretty small group of people right there. Let me tell you something, Marty. When you drive, when you drive across country from St. Louis, Missouri to British Columbia, uh, and 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 you can withstand each other after a two-year deal, you're you're either friends or or something's up. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, we did that. We used to do that in the early 70s, and I don't think anybody is qualified to know Lefty like I knew Lefty. But as far as his pitching was concerned, the only thing I did differently is I called a slider more. That's it. That's a, that's a pretty good call. Uh, <laughs> so I think it worked for, for both of you. Um, one last thing. When you when you watch a game and you see, you know, Aaron Boone sitting in the uh, in the dugout managing and, you know, he used to run around the clubhouse when you were there, what kind of thoughts run through your head? It used to he used to imitate every batter's stance on the on the uh, the Philadelphia Phillies roster. When his father was he he would do his father first and then he would run through even the pitchers, <laughs> even even bullpen pitchers for crying out loud. He knew he knew all of it. He was he was just absolutely delightful. He was he was charming and just one of the nicest young men. And you know what? That hasn't changed. Tim McCarver will turn seventy eight on October sixteenth. His memory is still so sharp with what literally thousands of baseball games stored in that bank. And I have to share with you this personal story that still amazes me about the depth of that memory bank in McCarver's brain. In 1979, I was a nine-year-old baseball fan, a Phillies fan, living in Middletown, Pennsylvania, about 100 miles west of Philadelphia. One summer Saturday, McCarver and Tug McGraw came to the local mall for an autograph signing, and my dad took me and my older brother there to the Harrisburg East Mall. I remember being kind of scared, and it wasn't the usually gregarious McGraw who calmed my nerves. It was actually McCarver who signed a five by seven headshot and my Phillies yearbook, handing it back to me with a smile that I still remember. Well, fast forward to 1996. I was a producer at WFAN and I was at the workout day at Yankee Stadium prior to the 1996 World Series. And I found myself standing on the field next to McCarver and Joe Buck. 
I had spoken to Tim on the phone many times for different shows I was working on, so I introduced myself and he flashed that same warm smile I got from him when I was nine. I proceeded to tell him that he was the first autograph I ever got when I was a kid and told him it was in the summer of 1979 at the Harrisburg East Mall. And Tim took a beat. He looked at me and said, that was a Hess's department store, right? I was floored then and I was floored again when I recounted this whole story about him remembering this autograph signing 17 years after it happened. And he laughed and told me he still remembers it now, 40 years later. And yes, I still have the autograph picture and the yearbook from that day. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tim McCarver. 60 years of baseball in him and still going strong. If you're new to 30 with Murdy or have missed any episodes this summer, please go check out our archive at radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review. In the next couple weeks, we'll talk about the 50th anniversary of the 69 Miracle Mets with Ron Swoboda and the 40th anniversary of the We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates with Kent DeColvey. Until next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sweeney Murdy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.